politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow patriots, to the Conservative Review podcast. Scorned taxpayers, forgotten Americans, you are not forgotten by this show. We are your advocate. We are your lifeline to reality um, here on this Tuesday, September 10th, right running up against that 18th anniversary of September 11th. A lot to do today, a lot to cover. Time is short, so uh, we're we're just going to jump right into it here. All right, so whenever we think we've just about, I don't want to say gone over the hump of one immigration crisis, we have another one. You see, to our government, which is run by our political elites in the media, in the political culture. There's no such thing as a humanitarian crisis for Americans. Everything is about doing for other people, not for the American people. It's all about others, not about yourself. Now, that might sound like, well, that's very virtuous. I mean, don't we want to be very charitable? There is something going on with our government, and it's really brought out by, you see the response to the hurricane in, in the Bahamas and the desire to bring in yet more immigrants from another country that demonstrates our political class doesn't understand the basics of morality, virtue, and the underpinnings of the social compact and what what we have a government for, why we have a government. There's an old saying, an old Jewish saying about charity that charity begins in the home. Very simple. And the idea is that throughout the Bible, it discusses the need to share your blessings with the unfortunate, to give charity all over the Old Testament. So one would think, well, maybe I should just sacrifice everything for other people, for charity. Now, when it comes to yourself, the more you do for others, the more virtuous you are. That is true. Now, you get to a point where God doesn't want you to completely burn yourself out, but but yeah, I mean, you have that ability, and often it's even the right thing to do to give yourself over to others. But when you're dealing with other people, collateral damage for other people, certainly you have no right to do that, right? So I have no right to bring in criminals to my neighborhood because I'm such a good person, and harm the rest of my neighbors. And that's that should be obvious. But what is often less obvious, and that gets lost in the shuffle, is your own family. You know, you often think, well, it's just one unit, it's me, so I could do it, you know, do what I want. But no, you have, let's say you're a head of the household, you have a wife, you have children, you have an obligation to them. Imagine if you just said, Screw you, kids. You want help with homework. You want me to play ball with you um, and spend some fatherly time. No, no, no. I'm going to do for others. Are you a good person? No, you're not. You're not. And and, and that's that's what it means. When you extrapolate that to governance, it's this point is true by a factor of 100 because it's even more so. Government, they're not our parents. I mean, officially, parents could do whatever they want. Like you always tell your kids, you know, this house is not a democracy, right? Every parent tells their kids that. 
Um, whereas with government, they work for us. They are our public servants. The resources of the United States government belong to the citizenry of the United States. If you, as one of the 325 million or so Americans, want to give everything away to others, there's plenty of charities, the Red Cross, to donate to, and, and that's your opportunity. But you have no right to volunteer the rest of the country and its resources in a harmful way to all be about others. And what's amazing is that whenever we are under attack, we have security needs, we have financial needs, nah, you know, we have no response. But the minute there's something going on in another country, suddenly, man, we're all there. Anything you want, our military is there. Financial aid, no one questions the cost. And then, of course, the first and last answer to everything, irrespective of how much we're spending on helping them there, is to bring them here. The answer to everything, whether it's strife going on, whether it's poverty, whether it's natural disasters, from any part of the world is always mass migration, and it's always to the United States. No other country. And nobody is standing up for the American people and asking, well, wait a minute, what are the costs to the American people? So we had the hurricane in the Bahamas, and immediately we had our Coast Guard there, we had CBP Air and Marine operations there, maybe other military units, certainly helping out a lot with humanitarian help. And now there's this great push to bring in Bahamians, I think that's how you pronounce it, to Florida. And they're already doing that to a large extent from what I can see. You have um, CBP put out a press release on Friday. And we never had a national debate on this. U.S. Customs and Border Protection officers processed the first mass evacuations from the Bahamas in West Palm Beach, Florida. Today, after Hurricane Dorian wreaked havoc on the islands, um, Bahamas Paradise Cruise Line's grand celebration arrived at the port of West Palm Beach with 1,435 passengers um, from the devastated Abaco and Grand Bahama Islands at 8.45 a.m. today. They noticed that they processed 539 U.S. citizens and lawful permanent residents, 857 Bahamians, and 39 other nationalities. So a third of them were Americans, which makes sense you want to evacuate. Two-thirds of them were not Americans. Now, what, what, what the media does is they show pictures and they want to deliver a policy punchline. The island's underwater, terrible situation, therefore, you're a dirtbag if you don't answer the call to bring in as many people as they desire. The problem with that is there's about five problems with that that are, are being obfuscated in this discussion, this rush from Marco Rubio and Rick Scott, the rhinos and Democrats and media figures to go in and, and just bring in people from the Bahamas. They're acting as if this is the first event, as if there's nothing else we're on the hook for, as if we have no other humanitarian help. They're acting as if there's no other countries in the world. They're acting as if there's no history with massive, massive abuse that we're suffering from this day of temporary humanitarian help for natural disasters that turns out to be permanent for decades. 
No one's asking questions of what is needed and what's not. Which part of the islands suffered? Could they be taken to other parts of the island? Where's the UK? Where's Canada? And if we're going to spend so much money to help them there, then why do, why do they get both? Like we do with Central American. We give aid there and then we bring them here. I mean, pick one. Let me just start off by saying, and this, this is a very important principle. Everything the United States government needs to do has to be governed by what is good for the American people. Any resources we have need to be used for the betterment of the American people or the protection of the American people. If it's the Coast Guard, CBP, the Navy, whatever it is. That always has to be your guideline. That's not being selfish. It's being selfish the other way. You could, with yourself, you could give yourself over to others. But if you are elected officials or bureaucrats, you have to implement our laws. So, the way I understand this, you could call it Daniel's just theorem of humanitarianism and the social compact, is that there's a certain extent of rational humanitarianism that you can't really articulate. The American people don't need it. It doesn't better their situation. But because God has blessed us with, with resources, and if through a cost-benefit analysis with a relatively sh small cost, we're able to save a lot of lives, and it's nothing, no harm is done to America beyond that just immediate cost, and it doesn't grow legs, we're, we're going to do that. Okay, the, the classic example with this is, um, you know, they talk about in World War II, when... We were bombing Germany every day, 1930, 1943, 1944. And they were asking Roosevelt to bomb the tracks that led to the concentration camp. So we were engaged in the theater anyway. Um, we had to defeat Germany anyway. And for a few more bombs and more limited, limited risk, you're able to save that many lives that will certainly be sent to their death. I think most of us recognize could fit that in that the sovereign American citizens are okay with that and, in fact, might want that to happen. You know, if, if we, like we have with the Yazidis, if there's a specific thing where they're being surrounded in one situation and we could bomb off ISIS, let's do that. But to engage in protracted nation building, that's a different story. Okay, kind of a one-off. Now, where you draw the line that gets very murky, but your thought process always has to be oriented towards the American people. Instead, it's the exact opposite. Americans could go to hell and everything is about other people because the media will only praise you if you do, do it. They'll only bash you if you don't do it. And no one ever asks, like, wait a minute, is that lawful? How much money are we on the hook for? Like, you're not even allowed to ask that. And like I say, it's the same thing with kids. Obviously, if once in a while, you know, you're headed out on a date with your kids and you're headed to some sort of fun place to take them and you see a guy struggling with his tire on the side of the road. So you know what? You understand that you want to teach the kids that, okay, you know, not 100% of what you do is for them. There are times where prudence 
and morality dictate that you should help others. But then you know what? You make it up to them. You, you take them on a better date. But if every single time your kids need help, you, div you, you not only ignore them, but you would divert your family's resources, money, and your own attention to other people every day. It's all about other people. You're not a good person. Now, this is not even a good analogy, like I noted, because they are not our father. A father could technically do what he wants, although it wouldn't be right to treat his kids that way. Following my analogy to his logical conclusion, but when it comes to government, they are our servants. And I just find this utterly amazing that they just want to bring these people in and no one's asking the obvious questions. How long? Where are they going to be housed? Who's going to pay for it? What if they have kids born here? Who's vetting them? Um, you know, because there is a massive drug trade there and there's a lot of criminal elements Everyone knows that the Bahamas, I mean, there's tons of criminal elements. Not saying most of them are, but, you know, like anything else, it's not a visa waiver country. Meaning you can't just show up here and expect to get a tourist visa and be let in at the airport or wherever. You have to apply. There is no visa waiver. So before we get into the five or so policy problems, just legally... It scares me to my core that we're governed by virtue signaling, not the rule of law, that media yellow journalism is dictating our laws. I cannot find where the statutory authority is to prospectively land boats there and bring people in mass. People talk about temporary protected status, but that's only for those already here and they're supposed to return and there's a natural disaster so you could stay six months. You apply for TPS. That's not to bring people in. Or you have parole, where you show up at our border. So according to 212, CFR 212.5, uh, the regulation um, uh, that, that implements statute on parole, it has to be case by case and only when they're not likely to abscond and do any harm to America. So, of course, the latter part of that clause is never followed, but it's case by case. You, if they show up at the border, you could case-by-case case parole them. But what you can't do is prospectively invite in shiploads and bring them in. I don't see where the statutory authority is to come in without applying for a visa. I don't, I don't see that. I, I might be wrong, but I, I have researched this and I can't find that. And the fact that nobody's asking that question bothers me. When it comes to, uh, there's an emergency at our border. No, we'll let it go on for a year and a half. Another country needs something, we're there. That is virtuous for an individual. I would rather care for others than myself. But I would rather use your property for other people. You're not a virtuous person. You're a loser. You're a bad person. So, first off, if this is so needed, let's do it the right way. For once, let's have an immigration debate in Congress. Why does every single time people just get let in against our laws when our laws say public charge, they have to be vetted, yada, yada? 
Oh, but this is an exception. Everything, as Jessica Vaughn said on the show on Friday, the exceptions are all the, always the rules, except in this case, there is no exception that justifies this. So have a debate in Congress, and this way we could raise our concerns and at least compromise, or at least, hey, we want to make sure this is temporary. So that's the legal part of it. Social transformation without representation. Don't we get a say in our own country? That's number one. Number two, how dare the media act as if there's no history with this? We have temporary protected status, which we said doesn't allow you to invite people in, but it's the principle applies that we had earthquakes in El Salvador in 2001. We had Hurricane Mitch in Honduras in 1998. We had the mudslides in Haiti in 2010. They are still here, about 400,000. And Trump, the Trump administration is renewing them. How, how could you say we're, we bring in another group of people without any question of like, dude, how are you going to ensure this is just temporary? Oh, don't worry, it's temporary. Well, what do you mean? Every other case, it hasn't been. And they're adamantly, they're adamant about it. How dare you cancel TPS 20 years after Hurricane Mitch? So... Isn't that a valid point? I mean, don't we, isn't that a valid question? So we have history with this that still reverberates. Then there's the other issue, double dipping, triple dipping, quadruple dipping. Every time there's an opportunity for mass migration, they reset the baseline as if we haven't been doing this in 50 other ways. See, if we had an immigration system that if we had a cool-off period of immigration where we barely had immigration, the few immigrants we had so we would assimilate people were of very high merit. And there's an unusual circumstance that you know will not grow legs and be repeated in 50 other circumstances, and it's temporary. All right, bring them in. Bahamas is close to Florida. Fine, bring them in. But let's say you're being taken advantage of a 100 different ways. You can't just isolate the Bahamas in a vacuum, show some uh, video footage, and then make, make Americans feel guilty. The last time I checked, we still have a crisis of our border. Now, the numbers are thankfully going down because we're finally implementing some sane policies. I want to get to that in a minute in the second half of the show. But, dude, we've had a million Central Americans come in. Could we deal with that flood? Dude, our entire immigration system is humanitarian. It's Again, if, if we're 99% merit, so you say, all right, we'll do 1% that's humanitarian. But no. We have 1.1 million immigrants every year, and most of that is humanitarian. Because most of them are, are poor people coming from poor countries to reunite with other poor family members in chain migration. It's not merit-based. Then we have the diversity visa lottery. Then we have parole. Then we have U visas. Then we have asylum. Then we have refugees. Then we have UACs. Then we have special juvenile visas. Then we have special immigrant visas, SIVs. Oh, all the people who helped us in Iraq and Afghanistan. Then... We have just the straight amnesty from those coming from Central America with no official designation. Bogus asylum. Now, oh, I'm not done yet. Then, see, 
We have our own protectorate we're on the hook for in the Caribbean with many more people, and that's Puerto Rico. Just had hurricanes. We've brought in 400,000 from there. So it's in that context that you have to talk about the Bahamas. Get say, oh, just a few thousand people. What's your problem? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. When does this end? Which leads to the next question is, if we are on the hook for Puerto Rico, shouldn't Great Britain and all its commonwealths, like New Zealand and um, Canada, be more on the hook for the Bahamas, which is a commonwealth? Now, I know that's more ceremonial. It's not as closely connected as Puerto Rico is to us. But still, it, it used to be owned by it. Have you heard a word from the Brits? And especially, we're the ones doing the aid over there, and the Navy is there, and the Coast Guard's there. So we have to do that end immigration? Again, I sound like, oh, you're stingy, you don't want to do more, but it's not my resources. Of course I want to. Hey, you Coast Guard guys, I want you to work 24-7 for the Bahamas. Doesn't cost me anything. But, you know, from a public policy standpoint, you need to ask these questions. If you say, oh, it's close proximity to us, so we're going to respond immediately, fine. But then over time, shouldn't Great Britain and other countries have to get involved? And okay, you say, oh, Florida's right here. We, we, we have to evacuate them. Okay. But then if you're going to stay for a little while, which clearly they will, despite what they say, shouldn't they be sent to Great Britain? You can't dip the American people 50 times. There's no context or background provided to this. And then also, there's questions. I mean, what parts of the island are, you know, problems? If, if, if Detroit is a natural disaster, they don't go to Canada. We have other parts of the country. Now, I understand we're a much big, bigger country, but there are a lot of islands there. You know, it wasn't their capital that was affected. It was the northern part, these two um, Grand Bahama Islands and uh, Abaco. It's those two that were hit. So, I don't know. I mean, are we checking? Are, are all of them coming? And, and the media is laughing out of that sort of speculation, like, oh, you know, criminals coming. But this is this is what happened with Central American TPS. It got taken advantage of, other people piggybacked on it, and it became permanent. Why aren't we thinking about Americans? You know, in that vein, I'm going to report to you when I find out, but later today, Trump is meeting with cabinet officials to set the annual fiscal year 2020 refugee cap. A few weeks ago, we wrote an article saying that the refugee cap should be set to zero. Because this was my point. We already have more refugees than any other country showing up at our border. See, they triple dip. There's 10 different categories that are like refugees. Like, whoa, we only let in 30,000 last year. Well, we should let in zero because no other country is dealing with that. I mean, Great Britain is not dealing with a Central American invasion. Great Britain doesn't have nearly the amount of immigrants we have. Then we have Puerto Rico. So why shouldn't they have to deal with what they own for a while and is still officially a commonwealth in the Bahamas? What happens? They come here pregnant and have kids. So we're going to have anchor babies now? You could call this cruel all you want, but you are cruel if you don't take into account the needs of Americans. And no one else is going to be doing this. But again, 
at least if you support it, Rubio and Rick Scott, notice Ron DeSantis is saying, look, you know, we don't want mass migration. He's being very careful, at least. Not as strong as I'd want, but... And that's another thing I want to get to. So we talked about the immigration half. Now let's just talk about the humanitarian aid. Again, let's see how to say this. I don't know why I'm the only one who thinks this way, but there's American resources being of, by, and for Americans, and then glancingly, parsimoniously, you help others. But we have the main entree and appetizer flipped. Everything is about other people and we don't do for ourselves. So we have the Coast Guard there. So then why do we need CBP to be there? We have a massive crisis when we need every boat we can from CBP and the um, Coast Guard on the Rio Grande River to combat the cartels, the drugs, the gangs, the previously deported aliens, all these people were reporting on every day about the sex offenders coming in. Where do you think they come in? In the border, because we don't have enough military-style resources to block them. We're, we're, we're scrounging for stuff at the border. Am I the only one who's allowed to ask, hey, we have, we have our own humanitarian crisis. Endless people coming in, and CBP is already diverted to dealing with the Central Americans rather than combating the criminal elements in the cartels. H how long are we going to be engaged there? Again, triage, they're right here. Emergency, 24, 48, 72 hours. But is this, how long is this going to be? And, and it has to be both the Coast Guard and CBP. Why does CBP need to get involved? I guess to bring in people through immigration. But you look at the Florida politicians touring the area. It literally sounds like it's Florida. We need to rebuild. It's our responsibility to re rebuild. So I started reading an article. I forget where. And I was like, wait a minute. Did, did Florida wind up getting hit? Did I not realize? I mean, I know they got a lot of rain. Did, did I? And, and then I realized they were talking about the Bahamas. I mean, why? <laughs> there's helping others. And then there's treating Every other country that anything happens as if it's our responsibility 100% while screwing America. And this is a zero-sum game because these resources are coming out of the border. Let me tell you something. I'm going to transition into our border briefing. I want to give you the latest of what's going on at the border. Remember in Fronton, Texas, just about a month ago, the Gulf Cartel shot 50 rounds at a riverine crew for CBP. And we did nothing about it. Do you know what I'm hearing? My sources tell me they've responded in no way. They've given them no additional training. I know I know. A, I have a friend who is on a riverine unit in that area. And in addition to that, guess what? They have left the area. They've left the area. The cartels got what they want. Mission accomplished. They got what they want. See, they shoot at our people knowing that it's going to push them out of the area. Where is the emergency to respond with the Coast Guard, with the Navy, with the Air Force, with the, the Army, Marines? 
CBP's Aaron Marine operations. To the cartel shooting at us. No. But the minute something happens to another country, yes, whatever you want. We're, we're, it's our responsibility. No, that, that's different than saying, look, we'll offer triage, emergency care. But come on, there's got to be a measure, a balance. That's the difference between true virtue and virtue signaling. That's the, that's the old wisdom of this antiquated Jewish statement, Jewish principle of charity starts in your home. The reason why it needs to be said is because it's too subtle. See, if I'm like, if I have my name splashed all over the community papers, oh, and I'm doing this for these people and I'm doing that for these people, it's very evident and it's very, I'm a good person. It's very, you know, it's very evidently fulfillment, fulfilling. But when it comes to your own family, that that's like normal. But But that's what you're supposed to be doing. It doesn't seem so evident. You don't get so much like public satisfaction and praise for it. But that, that that's your work in life. That's your main job. Our government is to care for the American citizens. What is too hard to understand about that? I don't understand it. But th that's what's happening at the Riverine units. He told me a friend of his quit. He just couldn't take it anymore. They're being left out to dry. Where is the emergency to send Coast Guard and CBP boats there? No, they left the region. Do you know what that means? It's a free shot to get in really bad people. Child rapists? That's a humanitarian crisis. And just speaking of these illegal alien sex offenders, I think it's very important to make one point. We have a lot of bad news. I'm known as the prophet of lamentation, the grim reaper here. But I think one good news is that I could tell you that I have heard that tomorrow Montgomery County, Maryland officials are going to meet with ICE officials over maybe quietly changing their sanctuary policies. That is because of the reporting of certainly Kevin Lewis, the ABC reporter there. We've pitched in and that's all it takes is just to expose the truth. The left cannot withstand the scrutiny of a sustained focus on the fact that they are letting go rapists and murderers of other countries that could easily be removed. See, Montgomery County is the convergence of jailbreak, weak on crime laws, and sanctuary, weak on immigration laws. Because they're barely locking up anyone. Even the worst people are getting released. So then you say, all right, well, at least if you're going to release everyone and not serve time... Let's ensure that the criminals that could be removed from the country aren't let back on the streets. So last night, uh, Kevin Lewis reported on an eighth case since July 25th in Loco in Moco, as, as Ken Cuginelli calls it, Loco in Moco, the eighth case of a, of a rapist being released. This guy was a rideshare driver. I forget his name. I can't even pronounce it anyway. Um, a Nigerian illegal alien who overstayed his visa. By the way, 18 years after 9-11, we haven't solved that problem. And this guy, so he was uh, arrested on on rape charges. He evidently offered a woman to sleep in his car because she wasn't feeling well and then raped her um, or allegedly raped her. 
exactly a year ago, this same guy was picked up on rape charges, a similar story. And now they believe because he was a rideshare driver, if this was his modus operandi, there might have been other suspects. But right away, I said, wait a minute. How could he have been arrested on rape as a foreign national and be let out and be in the country to rape again? And then I looked because he, he operated a lot in Montgomery, Maryland, but he lived officially in Fairfax County, Virginia, which is another sanctuary. And he has loads of driving violations his driver's license was suspended. He had um, charges for credit card larceny and identity theft. How is a guy able to remain undetected, cycle in and out of law enforcement for this long, and commit other crimes? The motto of Trump's re-election campaign should be that the first crime an illegal alien commits in this country should be the last crime. The first time he's arrested should be the last time. Because he should never be let out. We have all these recidivist criminals. Do we need other countries' criminals? It's that simple. It's so easy to deal with. Trump needs to push a sustained budget fight on defunding sanctuary cities and... Um, you know, we're, we're going to be covering that in the coming days. Now, I want to move on just to end the show with a border briefing, just the latest going on. The good news, the bad news, what to improve with. So the good news is obvious. Finally, 15 months too late, they started both between diplomatic relations with Guatemala, Honduras, and Mexico, creating third-party asylum agreements or in the process of doing it stating the obvious that you're a bogus asylee and turning people back. And then this return to Mexico policy has created a scenario where the message has gone out to Central Americans that the party's over. So you might have seen the reports that um, the August numbers across the border went down another 22%. Uh, the way I'd present it to you in the even starker um a starker presentation is if you break down, I'm just looking here on my notes here. Um, if you break down the numbers from the family units versus single adults. So some people want to say this is the weather. Now the weather might account for a certain built into the cake baseline, but not for the numbers we're seeing. And, and one of the proofs is this, that, Whereas the single adult numbers went down 8% since the previous month and 40% since the peak in May, the family unit numbers went down by 41% this past month and 70% since the peak in May. Now, the policy changes affected mainly the family units because of the single adults officially on paper, they were being detained anyway. So that's really where you see the change, and that's where the numbers are are going down. That is amazing news. That is critically, critically important. And, um, and it just goes to show that when you don't invite them, they don't come. Now, to put an exclamation mark on that, I just have the latest Texas numbers. This is just Texas. But if you break down the weekly numbers in Texas, which accounts for most of the border apprehensions, the numbers are even starker because the 
the second half of the month was even less. So if you look at the week ending, I actually have the week ending September 4th. So it's even the first few days of September. Um, just 6,700. 6,700 apprehensions at the border, whereas the week before was, um, you know, about a thousand more. So it's it's gone down this past week. And I think because this is the first full week or two after it was announced that the Flores Agreement is going to be terminated in about a month from now. So that's the good news. But we need to go for the kill. We need to end this. You know, the numbers are still well over what they should be. When Trump took over, we got them down to 13, 15,000 a month, the whole border. It's still holding by 60,000 or so. Why is it that it's been half deterred and not fully deterred? There's a reason for that. If you, here's basically what I'm hearing from my sources, if you put it all together, I'm going to try to give it to you in kind of a five-minute brief. If you look at the new numbers coming up the pipeline from Central America, now we don't have numbers, but I'm just saying if you would, you would likely see the numbers aren't down 50%. They're probably down 80-90%. A good chunk of the ones that they are catching are not new people in it's the return to Mexico, the MPP folks trying to enter illegally. Now, I never agreed with the MPP policy. My position always was these are bogus asylees, and I gave numerous legal and political reasons why we should just turn them back, and that's it. But nonetheless, it was better than the full-born amnesty, full amnesty that we were doing until then, so this was the middle ground where we wouldn't downright reject them, but we'd say you have to return to Mexico and we'll bring you in for a court date. That was better than straight up catch and release, for sure. We've returned about 40,000 of them, and certainly that's deterred a lot of others. But what it's also done is it's placed a group of very desperate people right on our doorstep. So the cartels are going crazy, so it's very dangerous there. And it's funny, by the way, the left is finally discovering the cartel problem. Not the danger to America, but hey, you can't return them to Mexico. The, the migrants are being abused by the cartels. Well, yeah, you're right. But the answer to that is rather than letting them in, we should go the exact opposite direction rather than this half-baked return to Mexico. Just you're not let in and you're not going to get a court date at all. You're bogus societies. That's it. You return home. So they're staying there and they feel a need to come in. So a lot of them are now coming in illegally. And a lot of what Border Patrol is catching are those who come in who are already encountered and given a notice to appear, you know, the MPP documentation, and they're put there. The problem is that now that the government has moved on, thankfully, to bigger and better, more categorical rejections, it's time to update the MPP because it's actually hurting us in several ways. So number one is because of the threat of the tariffs, Mexico is actually deporting people. Now, they're not fighting the cartels and patrolling our border. That's a myth. They did that for like one day. But on the interior, they are bossing back a lot of people. Here's the deal. If you have an MPP, they're not going to deport you because officially we might 
bring them in for asylum. So we're actually preventing Mexico from deporting more people. It's stupid. And also, now that we are doing more categorical approaches, where we're saying that you had to have applied in Mexico or Guatemala, otherwise you're not an asylee, which is true. So done. You're That's it. There's no like, oh, you might have a case, wait in Mexico. No, you'll never have a case, goodbye. So we should be doing that with everyone. Instead, it's a jumbled mix. Some people were giving MPP, some people were rejecting, some people on smaller numbers, we still are bringing in and releasing. But once we do implement Flores, uh, uh, cancellation of Flores, and hold people and never release them until their court date, there's no reason to do MPP. Either reject them all or you hold them in America. But what you don't want to do is keep them with a certain guaranteed status on our doorstep where they could constantly cycle in. The cartels are making a killing off of that because they're coming in multiple times trying to come in as runners. Here is what a border agent told me today. Just going to read to you his, um, his note. Maria and her son from Honduras, and he actually sent me a picture. They came in. We spent around an hour tracking and chasing her and this group. The brush was thick, and a portion of it was like a swamp. Why is a family unit running, right? This never happened before. They usually surrendered. Well, after questioning her, we found out that we apprehended her and her son on August 10th, almost in the same area. She was part of the MPP program. We gave her a court date in December and sent her back to Mexico. Not only did she not want to wait, but she also said that she shouldn't have to because she feels her circumstances entitle her to the same rights and privileges as any other U.S. citizen, and she shouldn't have to see a judge. So she paid the cartel $22,000 to cross her twice. Unfortunately, this story is now becoming the norm. Every day we are cashing family units running from us because they, they too do not want to wait. Just a few days ago, we had a big bailout from a high-speed um, FTY, that's failure to yield, where they just run through the checkpoint, and the majority of the legals in the vehicle were family units in the MPP program. The MPP program is causing some major unintended consequences. The cartels are benefiting even more, and the family units, often with little kids, are now facing even more danger on both sides of the border. And by the way, politically, Trump's going to get hit with this eventually. This is another example of how a half-baked policy is sometimes worse than just categorically rejecting it. And I think the time—I understand why we started with that when that was in lieu of full amnesty. But now that we are ending Flores and we are downright saying none of these people are eligible because they could have applied in other countries, we should just reject them and not give them um, you know, some sort of quasi-status to remain in Mexico— because what, what I am hearing is that if we would just get rid of that, the numbers would be almost nothing. Almost nothing. I mean, aside from obviously the really bad criminal elements that always try to sneak in. But in terms of those kind of, kind of cunning, coming in for status, it's not just 50%. A good chunk of the remaining 50% are the ones that we're actually recycling with this MPP. Just end it. Reject everyone, and it's done. It's that simple. The point of today's show is that our government owes it to the American people to treat their humanitarian needs. This is not about the migrants, but unfortunately, our government, DHS, CBP, they haven't really changed. It's all about their needs, their wants, their desires. But again, if you shine the light and put the spotlight on what is actually happening 
you're going to see results. And we're starting to gain traction with focusing on the sanctuaries. And we got to do this. But just remember, the cartels are still getting in bad people and bad things every day. You know, just just uh, yesterday it was announced. Um, what is this? This person, illegal alien arrested with enough fentanyl to kill 500,000 people, sentenced to over six years in federal prison for heroin trafficking. First of all, notice this guy had, was the worst top-line drug trafficker. He got six years. All this talk of all oh, low-level drug offenses getting 30 years, it's not true. It's bogus. But anyway, I mean, these are the people that are coming in. And we still don't have enough resources that were and, and, and good tactics to treat this as a military issue. We just don't. And then now, we're now diverting them to the Bahamas with no questions asked. Well, on this show, we are going to ask those questions. We're going to discuss the information you're not going to hear elsewhere. There's a lot more to do. I got to run. But tomorrow is a big show anniversary of 9-11. And uh, boy, is there a lot to go over with that. We could talk for hours on that. We'll have a special show tomorrow. Till then, send me your comments, questions, and concerns to dharwitz at blazemedia.com. Tweet me at rmconservative. Subscribe to Conservative Review's YouTube page and like our videos. Drop a comment or two. And uh, till next time, God bless you all. Thanks for listening.